us that passage, and um, uh, I was, I've been mulling that that entire time. You know, if, if you imperfect human beings know to give your children good gifts, won't your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? The context there, of course, is that if, you, if we give good things to our children, doesn't God even give better things? And what's the best thing? Well, as good as an egg would be and as good as a fish would be, um, the Holy Spirit, is a, as a gift, is the best, the best. And I just would say to you as a father, as a, as a, as a biological father, after salvation for my children, the thing I want in their lives more than anything else is that they would walk under the power um, of the Holy Spirit. And that Jesus, uh, Jesus basically taught that and said, I got to go because if I don't go, the comforter won't come. And this is a big deal. Holy Spirit will come, and um, so I, I, I. Maybe you don't know Jesus. Maybe you don't know God in that intimate way. I want to give an opportunity because the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, is more than salvation. It's the power to testify of the love of Christ. It's life changing. It's effective. It's it's the best gift. And so um, I just would give an opportunity right now if you've never d- decided to open the doors of your heart, abandon your own willpower your own choices, your own plan for life, and say, God, do you have something better for me to position yourself right that? Close your eyes, please. Lord, we, we, um, we, we may have blown past that, not intentionally, because we were led well, but we may have in our own hearts blown past a profound moment of promise from heaven this morning. So we back up to that moment and say, God, fill us today with your spirit. For people in this room who have never never been to that place where they've said, okay, I'm saved, but I, I don't really know what it is to walk under the power of the Spirit. For the very first time, they're saying, Lord, have your way in my heart. Do that. And for those of us, Lord, who this has been a part of our ongoing life for maybe years, would you once again, with fresh power, baptize us with the Spirit? Fill this place, Lord, with people who are sensitive to your voice, full of life. So even though we came in here today with, a, with issues, with things we wanted you to touch and things we would ask you to, to, to heal in our lives, Lord, we, we, we come to the place where your eyes met us and you said, I have a really good thing if you'll ask for it. So we ask today. We ask today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you jumped in on that um, because that's, that's something prophetic that the Lord spoke to our worship leader, and I don't want to miss something when the Lord's doing that. Well done, by the way. Thank you, um, Pastor Eric. So um, Proverbs, you know, I'm going to start with a proverb. Here we go. Proverb 21, verse 30. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Okay. Good truth for us to be mindful of. Now, I, um, I, there was this guy who was an evangelist, and he was coming to churches um, when I first got saved a long time ago. His name was John Garlock. Some of you might remember John Garlock. Anybody here know, remember John Garlock? A few, yeah. So John Garlock was this great Bible teacher. I think he's in Dallas Theological Seminary. I mean, he, I don't know if he's even alive anymore. But he had this thing where he liked to share an African proverb at the beginning of a message. So I got one for you, an African proverb. A big problem solves a little problem. Think about that for a while. Okay. Who takes the garbage out at your house? I do. I'm going to hide for a little while. (laughs) You tell the truth, woman. (laughs) 
Okay. So everybody has their own system for divvying up stuff at their house. <laughs> the truth is, she's really good at remembering. Is it? <laughs> I can see there's no, no way out of this hole. She's good at remembering. Is it recycle this week? Is it garbage? And then there's the green cart day, which is all of the debris from the yard, right? Okay, so she has that. I don't have that sorted because I don't know how to read a calendar. But um, anyway. Sometimes I roll the garbage can back to the house after it's been emptied, okay? <laughs> hey, wait a second. If it comes on Thursday. This is not part of my... If it comes on Thursday at my house, right? And we went to bed, and we're in bed late at night on Wednesday night. And she says, did you take the garbage out? I said, why would I do that? You know, like, <laughs> but I want you to know, I got out of bed, got dressed again, and took the garbage out. <laughs> okay, you just made the sermon like five minutes longer. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. All right, well, there are some things in our life that just need to sometimes get rolled out to the curb. They need to go in a big old green bag tied up at the top and kicked to the curb. Um, that's all the whole garbage thing was supposed to be. We could have saved all that time. I, I just want to say that as we talk about some of those topics today, and we're starting a new series today, which I'm going to be visiting this series over the course of the summer. Um, and uh, we're, going to, we're going to be talking about some things that are going on, some thought processes, some ways that we go about things in our lives that really need to be bagged up and taken to the curb, kicked out and taken out with the trash. And so fair warning, because some of the things I'm going to talk to you about are um, cultural beliefs. In fact, they're so, they've so, so seeped into culture, they're probably in part of our thinking, probably all of us. And in fact, I think some of those things have actually seeped into church culture too. So I don't want to step on anybody's toes here. I'm going to preach what the Word teaches, but I'm going to compare it to what the world teaches. And you'll probably recognize some of these things. So that's your fair... Some things need to be bagged up and rolled to the curb. And, and here's the thing. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about change today. Because I think people want to change. I think people tried to change. Maybe you've made a list of things about yourself. You know, why am I like this? Why do I do this? When am I going to learn? You know, you've maybe say these things to yourself. What's wrong with me? And listen, God wants to help us change. He does. God wants to be a positive. And the reason that we fail um, is not because God doesn't want us to change. The reason sometimes that we fail to change is because sometimes, many times, we're using faulty methods for change. And uh, there are a lot of faulty methods to change. They're both inside and outside the church. They kind of creep into the church. And sadly, I think sometimes when that change doesn't happen in our lives, we kind of contend to blame God when we really haven't even tried to do it, go about it his way. So... I'm going to go through some faulty methods of change, and what I'm hoping that will happen for you is you'll go, oh, yeah, that's kind of been involved in my life. Give me one of those big green bags. Call up Lisa, because she'll take it to the curb. <laughs> Kick that thing to the curb. And uh, you, you, know, you say, no wonder I've been struggling with this, and I just can't, and because some, some faulty things. And I want to start with this. And if you're a note taker, here's something for you to make note of. True life change comes only through partnership with God, and must begin with the rejection of faulty, self-centered change methods. Okay, that's a long mouthful. I'm going to give it to you again. True change comes only through partnership with God. 
talk about why. And must begin with rejection of all faulty, self-centered change methods. If we keep doing what we've always been doing, we're going to have the same results we've always had. So something's got to change even in our approach. So um, how about a new approach? Sound, sounds pretty good to me anyway. So, but before we get to a new approach, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna address some things, bag them up, and kick them to the street. Faulty methods for change, number one. Faulty method for change number one is environmental change. Environmental change. Um, we're going to be, if you have your Bible, we'll be in Luke 15 in a minute or two, but um, I'm going to spend a little time. Environmental change. It's another term for that is called behaviorism. Behaviorism. And this approach was made popular by, um, by a guy named John B. Watson and later by another guy named B.F. Skinner. If you follow human psychology, you'll know these names. Um, and uh, they, th- they're, they're, this approach stresses the importance of the environment in controlling human behavior. The idea here is that the environment that um, the environment conditions a person to behave certain ways. And you've heard that word conditioning before too. If you, you, you this this f- school of philosophy was really influenced by by a guy named uh, Ivan Pavlov. You know about Pavlov, his dogs. You probably studied this in school, right? Pavlov had dogs. I don't know what kind of dogs they were. They were probably naturally slobbery dogs to begin with. Most, you know. Anyway, so he has these dogs, and he fed the dogs. And he noticed when he put food in front of the dogs, but before they ate, they would start to drool. Okay? It's, I have to show you what that means because you don't know what drooling means. They'd start to drool. And then he would ring a bell. They would see the food, hear the bell, salivate. Let's repeat that. Food. Bell, salivate, food bell. I mean, you don't have to repeat that because you're being conditioned. Okay, so um, didn't mean to condition you just now by the environment. Anyway, so um, some of you got that. Thank you. Live long and prosper. Peace and long life. Yeah, okay. So um, I don't know what that was all about. But anyway, so show them food, ring the bell, they would salivate. He repeated it over and over again. And he learned after a while he didn't have to put any food out. Ring the bell, the dogs would salivate, right? Conditioning, conditioning. So this was something that was quite a discovery and Watson and Skinner and other people then extrapolated. And I use the word extrapolated because where they went from there was a stretch that most, if not all, human behavior results from conditioning, conditioning. You act the way you are because of your environment. That's the conclusion, because you've been conditioned to. So, okay, ask yourself the question, is that right? Is that true? I mean, because we've been told that that's true. And here's the thing. Um, as with most psychological theory, there is some truth. Everybody say some truth. Some truth. Okay, good. That wasn't a trick or anything, but there's some truth. Certainly, our behavior can be influenced by the environment. Certainly, okay? And certainly we can have patterns of thinking formed over a period of time because of things we experience. But the problem is with concluding that all or most all human behavior is a result of conditioning is that there is no automatic cause and effect relationship. I'll give you a couple examples. Some mass murderers come from very wealthy families and they're highly educated people. So to say that mass murderers come from poverty and from broken... Not, that's not true. They come from across the spectrum. Here's another one. Some Pulitzer Prize-winning novelists, some Nobel-winning scientists came from abject poverty. 
Okay, so if, if, if it was true that condition pr- produces something specific, then it should be true all the time. It's just not true all the time. In fact, it, it, if it was, it's just not true. The f- matter of the fact is that people cross over conditions all the time, and they, they emerge from their conditions. It happens all the time. You know, here's another example, a classic one that's been studied, and that's identical twins. Okay, identical twins. Same parents, same family, same siblings, same DNA. Everything is pretty much the same. And you might see that they, you know, dress the light. But in truth, as, as they grow in life, they become completely different people. And I just say that from, you know, not just the studies, but which are out there and, and show that. But, uh, you know, I had identical twins in my family. My, I had cousins who were identical twins. They were so identical, I couldn't tell them apart. And they played on that. <laughs> they did. They played games. And I think they did that to their teachers at school. They did all kinds of fun things that I couldn't do. It was great. But... <laughs> But as they grew and they became adults, they were two radically, significantly different people. Same upbringing. Environment matters, but environment is not determinative. It doesn't cast you into a mold. If you've, been, if you, if you've bought into the idea that you are the way you are because of something that happened to you, I want to bag that up and kick that to the curb today. Uh, I, I want to take you there today. Okay, so here we are now, um, Luke 15, and we're going to be in one of the most well-known parables that Jesus told, um, and this is the one about the prodigal son, prodigal child, verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. Okay, so two kids brought up in the same family, the same environment, Verse 12, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Pause for a second. This is a little bit of a rabbit trail. Every time I read this story, that um, arrogance, presumption, and insensitivity, it kind of chafes. <laughs> chafes. It just seems so inappropriate. You know? you know, hey, dad, before you die, can I have my stuff? It's like, oh. Wow, Ooh, ouch. Um, anyway, okay. And he divided, so dad just goes with the flow. This guy's godly. I don't know how it had happened. And he divided this, his property between them, verse 13. Not many days later, so right away, the younger son gathered all he had, takes all his money, and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. Now, okay, many of you have raised a prodigal child. And it can be hard when one of your little ones, they maybe are not so little, they say, I'm tired of my family, I'm tired of my father, I'm tired of my brother, I'm tired of my job, I'm tired of this farm, I'm tired of having limits pressed down upon me. And this, this guy goes wild. He squanders everything he has with reckless living. Verse 14. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in the country. Mental note, make a note, famine. We're going to come back to that later. This famine arose, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself out to be to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. Okay, there's a whole new sermon right there. We're not even going to go there. But this guy has fallen a long, long way. I think probably in Jewish culture, working in the swine industry was the bottom I mean, it was terrible to work in the swine industry. And um, he lived like a pig, ended up living with the pigs. 
And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Verse 17, but when he came to himself, that is an amazing statement. But when he came to himself, notice Jesus says that, but when he came to himself, he didn't have to fix his past. He didn't have to fix his problems. He didn't have to fix his environment. He didn't have to change his conditioning. What needed to be fixed? Point at what needed to be fixed. You can actually physically point at it. Not my heart, your heart. Okay, what needed to be fixed was his heart. He was the problem. He's got a heart problem. It's inside him. Of course, our environment affects us. And I'm not saying to you that things haven't happened to you that that made life difficult or terribly hard for you. I'm just saying that in the final analysis here, you are not the sum of the things that have happened to you. Your experiences are not determinative. Your environment, your your conditioning does not determine the person that you are or who you're going to become. I'm the problem. It's my thinking. It's my heart. How many of us fall into this? You know, we need something to change, but we think that, you know, if, if, if I just, if, if uh, this thing would be better if I could just get a different job, if I had, you know, it's my family, it's my, you know, where we live, you know, if I could only live in California or the sunshine of Hawaii, that actually sounds pretty good. <laughs> Somebody tried it. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for that truth. Okay, that's good. I mean, but it doesn't, it, the environment isn't going to get you there. I mean, really? You want to blame the environment? Okay, okay. If I could just get this job. Happiness is so much more than that. And um, I, I want to take that thinking, bag it up, and kick it to the curb. I'm going to get a stub toe if I keep doing that. <laughs> kick it to the street. Behaviorism. Faulty ne- method number one, environmental change. Number two, faulty method number two, digging up my past. And this has been pretty popular. Digging up my past. It's called psychoanalysis. Name the Austrian physician famous for this. Anybody brave? Sigmund Freud. Right. I heard it back over here. Sigmund Freud. He really believed that human behavior is determined by these powerful forces buried deep in your subconscious. You know, we force from, you know, from our conscious mind any awareness or, or, or about our needs and experiences that's unacceptable to us or maybe unacceptable to other people. So we push it down, we suppress it, we hide it. This is the thinking of psychoanalysis. And by the way, if you have had or been for or are going for psychoanalysis, I don't judge you for that. I mean, I, I, th- I think, but by the way, I think any good mental health professional should hear your story, right? Any loving, loving biblical counselor should hear what's happened to you in your life. They should care about that, all right? But this drilling... This deep, deep digging. What happened? You know, it's back there. It's got to be there. There's something hidden there, or else this wouldn't be going on in your life. You know, and, and if you don't, you have to find it. If you don't find it, you can't change. That's just wrong. It's just wrong. The idea that there's some repressed information that may or may not, that controls everything about you, it's just wrong. Actually, the biblical message is the opposite, pretty much the opposite. The Bible teaches that the key to change is not remembering things, you know, that may or may not have happened. It's not remembering them. It's facing them. The biblical key to change is facing something, 
forgiving it and then forgetting it. And I'm not going to teach on that today. That's a whole series there all by itself. But that's the order. You face it, you forgive it, then you forget it. And if you try to forgive it before you face it, that doesn't work. If you try to forget it without forgiving it, that doesn't work. So there's a scriptural way to, to, to deal with those kinds of things. And, and so you, you face it, you, you, you look at it, you assess it, you inventory it. And then by God's grace, everybody say by God's grace. By God's grace, you forgive it, and then you forget it. And I don't mean to minimize that, but I'm, that's not today's message. So here you can write something else down if you're a note taker. You're not a victim. You are not a victim. And, and listen, I have spent so much time on specific topic prayer for you this week because of this moment. Because some of you have been and are or are in pain now because of terrible things. And I love you and I care for you and I prayed for you. But I want to tell you this in the name of Jesus Christ. You are not a victim. You're just not a victim. You might say, well, terrible things happen to me and, you know, they're awful. And I say, yeah, but they don't control you. But, but they're terrible things I have nightmares about. Yes, I know, and I'm sorry, and it breaks my heart that you carry that weight and that pain. But they don't control you. They don't. Romans 8, 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can condemn you. Nothing can knock you down. No one can squash you under their heel. Because you know why? Because you are the son or the daughter of the living God. The living God, you're not a victim. Romans 8.31 tells us if God's for us, who can be against us? <laughs> the answer is nobody. They might try it, but you know, God is for you. You're just not a victim. And then Romans 8.37, I love the book of Romans. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. You know, there's, there's not one thing possible that can happen to you, but that the power of God is not capable of helping you crawl up and get on top of that thing. Nothing, nothing can overcome that in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what this series is about. We had to take some thinking and kick it to the curb. Another one, digging up my past, changed by day. It doesn't work. I love the story of Joseph. Joseph is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. In fact, I think it's why Lisa and I chose to use that name for one of our sons. Now, um, I will be in Genesis 45 and, and on. I'm not going to spend too much time reading the scriptures, although some of it. Um, but if you're not familiar, don't be embarrassed. You know, if you're new to church and you don't know the story about Joseph, I don't mind telling you about Joseph, okay? So Joseph is this boy. He was, he was raised like a daddy's boy. He was pampered. And um, that was a little bit out of balance in his life. Any parent reads a story about what's going on there, you go, oh, this isn't a good way to parent. You've got some issues here. And um, Joseph allowed himself to get a little bit messed up by that. And he was kind of socially awkward. His, his, he offended his brothers. Um, and he was kind of acted sometimes kind of young and stupid. I mean, I don't necessarily connect those two. But he did some stupid things. And, but, but he had faith. Joseph had faith, and so, to his credit. But anyway, so his brothers were, were pretty ticked off at one point. His father had given him a very special coat, okay? And he's strutting, maybe. I don't know. But maybe he was kind of... His brothers were really offended. He loved the coat. It was a pretty big deal. But he, instead of being discreet about it, he strutted. It seems like. It seems like. So he's, his brothers see him. They're ticked off. They're bitter. They're angry. They're resentful. And so um, they lay in wait, and they capt- capture him. I'm going to compress this. And they stripped him of his clothes, 
throw him in a pit naked. It's like a cistern. It'd be like, throw him in. It's a hole in the ground, and it's a dry, hard landing. He doesn't, his clothes are off. It's not good. And they're trying to figure out what to do, and some of them want to kill him. And one of the older brothers says, no, 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 let's not do that. Let's sell him instead into slavery. So they decide that's merciful. I don't know if it is or not. Um, but um, So they, his brothers sell him. They sold him. His brothers took money to sell him into slavery. He's taken away into Egypt. He's trying to do the right thing. He's trying to be an honorable man. He's you know, trying to walk by faith. And, and eventually, God honors that. And he gets promoted. He gets a really good job. We would call it a good job. He's managing the household of a powerful guy. And, and um, apparently, he was pretty good-looking guy because the woman of the house gets the hots for him. Can I say that in church? And she starts chasing him. <laughs> I guess I can because you laughed at me. You know, that only encourages me. So anyway, so she starts chasing him and she starts grabbing him and pulling his clothes off. And he says, I, I can't do this. This would dishonor God. This would dishonor... I'm not into... No. And he runs out of the house. And she's embarrassed, ashamed, scorned, Hell hath no fury. Anyway, so, I mean, he, she's ticked. She's got evidence. So she falsely accuses him of a character violation that would make her husband really angry. And he gets thrown back into jail again. His brothers assault him. They strip him. They sell him for money. He does the right thing. And for that, he gets thrown into prison. He's a slave. He gets thrown into prison again. And somewhere along here, Pharaoh has a dream, and his smart people can't figure it out. Somehow Pharaoh finds out about this guy that can enter. And the Lord gives to Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh realizes, oh, this, this guy walks with God. I want him close to me. And he makes Joseph the number two ruler over Egypt. He's promoted out of the bottom. And um, wow, what a thing. And then something else happens. Another famine Remember I said before, remember there's a famine? Okay. And this is just a little side comment I'm going to make about famine. We don't like hardship. Right? <laughs> we, don't, we don't like it when things go hard for us. But sometimes that's the only thing that can soften up our hearts. I don't think God wants to put hardship into our life, but I think sometimes God allows the famine to happen because there's a tenderizing that goes on there. And then he can do good things in our hearts that we, we, we won't allow any other way. Anyway, so there's a famine. And because the Joseph's brothers and the whole family, they're going to starve, they find out there's food in Egypt because Joseph has been a smart ruler. And um, there's a strategic food reserve. And so they travel to Egypt. They don't know Joseph is alive. They don't know who they're going to... And they get there... This is an awesome story because of God's sovereignty and how God can you know, redeem a life. And we're going to pick up in Genesis 45, verse 8. So he's having this conversation. They've discovered now, and they think they're going to die because it's Joseph. Oh, no. We've come asking for food, and this is the guy that we really abused and hurt. And here's what he says to his brothers, verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He's saying here, you, you thought you sinned against me. You, you, you stripped me naked. You sold me as a slave. But God was at work in all of that. 
God had a plan for my life. God was working through your sin. In all of this, God was working together for the good of those who love God and are called according. That's going on in my life. That's what he's saying to his brothers. He's saying, I'm here because God wanted me here. And then he looks at this statement. He says, he has made me a father to Pharaoh. I'm father over the king of, of Egypt. This is a big deal. Incredible. And, the, and Lord of all his house and ruler, ruler over all the land of Egypt. And the story continues. All the brothers come down to Egypt. And this next thing should be underlined in your Bible. Okay? So if you don't have your Bible with you today, remember this. Go home and underline it as soon as you get there. If you don't have a Bible at home and you don't have one here, don't go home. Go to the store and buy one because you should have a Bible. Then go home and underline this is Genesis 50, 20. We'll back up to verse 19. But underline this in your Bible. They're afraid he's going to kill them because he's got all this. But he's not bitter. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for, for am I God, the place of God? Verse 20, here's the one. You underline this. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. That should be the life story. In the, you know, that should be, should be the story of, of so many people here. The world wants to call you a victim. You made some awful choice, maybe, when you were young, or somebody made some sinful choice against you, or... Somebody turned on you and your family and really hurt you or abused you or they did something awful to you in college or a business partner absolutely abused your partnership and you're, or you think you're in a trapped relationship that's never going to go anywhere. Listen, they, might, they, they may mean it for evil, but God will use it for good. You're not a victim and you're not trapped anyway. The story goes on. And if you follow the character of the story of Joseph, he, he, you know, things live happily ever after. I'll just say that much. He has some sons, and he names one of his sons Manasseh, which is really significant. Because if you study this through in the Hebrew, the, the name Manasseh, names are meaningful to them. The name, hey, daddy, what's the name Manasseh mean? Well, son, the name Manasseh means the Lord made me forget. The Lord made me forget. I, I'm not bitter. I'm not angry. I'm not hurt. I'm not a victim. The Lord made me forget. How, and, you know, and, and, and he says, you know, how could me, who the Lord has showered so much grace on me, not forgive and forget these things? The Lord made me forget. Positive change does not come by digging up the past. Some of you, you know, are going for counseling, and I think counseling is good. I really do. Provided that you're getting the counsel of the Lord. Provided you're getting wise, biblical counsel. Not digging up my past, not environmental change. God is something better. Okay, faulty method number three. Change through self-discovery. Now, um, I'll explain that in a minute, but I, I, I just, it might look to you like I'm really picking on the psychological world, and I might be a little bit. But I want to talk about why, we're, why I'm talking about human philosophy here a little bit. Um, because here's, here's what the world says about itself on this topic. And if you don't know, if you've never um, walked into the mental health profession at all, you may not know about this, but they have something called the DSM. DSM. It's the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorder. Okay? So it's kind of like their, their, their manual for... It is their manual. It's what they use to say, okay, here are these different conditions and how you treat them, mental issues. Okay? You with me so far? 
and it's pretty much the the go-to authoritative um, book in the United States and in much, much of the world. Um, it's published by the American Psychiatric Association. The current version is the DSM-5, um, which was published in 2013. There's a four, a three, a two. You know, it goes back. It goes back decades. Here's the problem. Um, the DSM has changed its position and definition on many important and controversial topics, not because of science, but because of opinion, preference, and social and political pressure. That's a fact. Now, you see a pastor up here, it sounds like I'm railing against the mental health industry. It could appear that way. I'm just going to tell you some facts about the DSM. And I'm not going to give you my opinion. I'm going to tell you what the writers of the DSM say about it. Okay? Okay. So... Um, it's been criticized a lot by its own editors. Um, there was a very influential paper um, published in 1974 by two editors, and they used the statement. They said it was an unreliable diagnostic tool. Okay. But let's keep updating it and keep using it. Okay. So that's where it went. Um, the DSM-4, which is the one that precedes this one, um, the chair, chairman of the DSM-4 task force, a guy named Francis, uh, Alan Francis, MD, he's professor emeritus at, at Duke, I'm going to read to you, um, this is from a published uh, uh, commentary in Psychology Today. I'm going to read it to you verbatim. This is the saddest moment in my 45 years of studying, practicing, and teaching psychiatry. The Board of Trustees of the American Psychiatric Association had given its final approval to a deeply flawed DSM-5 containing many changes that seem clearly unsafe and, un and scientifically unsound. My best advice to clinicians, to the press, and to the general public... I guess I'm general public. Be skeptical and don't follow DSM blindly down a road likely to lead to massive overdiagnosis and harmful overmedication. This is the, chief, the, the guy in charge of this manual. The history of psychiatry is littered with fad diagnoses that in retrospect did far more harm than good. Yesterday's APA approval, because this is back in 2013, yesterday's APA approval makes it likely that DSM-5 will start a half or a dozen or more new fads which will be de detrimental to the misdiagnosed individuals and costly to our society. Wow. This is the guy in charge of writing the thing. It's a group of, I don't know how many, a lot, uh, I think 150 maybe, of highly you know, credentialed doctors that put this stuff together. Here's another one. This is Leah Greenfield. She's a doctor of sociology, political science, and anthropology. Um, and another paper, another quick quote. The DSM does not solve the fundamental problem of psychiatry and psychology. That is, it does not provide them with the understanding of the human mental process, the mind, healthy or ill. This is obviously not a problem with which the DSM-5 creates or which was created by any of the preceding versions of the document. It is the problem at the core of the psychiatric, psychological, mental health establishment in its entirety, both its research and its clinical branches. Basically saying, we really don't know how human minds work. We're drilling holes in people's heads trying to figure things out. It's kind of the equivalent of what she's saying there. Why should we care about the DSM? Can we just ignore it? According to the APA, this is another quote, clinicians use DSM-5 diagnosis to communicate with their patients and other clinicians and to request reimbursements from insurance companies. In other words, the DSM-5, no diagnosis, no money. 
So this document drives whether your insurance company will pay for your health care, mental health care. And then there's a couple more t- statistics I'll toss in and I'll move on. <laughs> 70, 70% of the DSM task force members have ties to the pharmaceutical industry, 70%. And of the subgroup, the DSM subgroup that did mood disorders and schizophrenia and other psychological disorders, 100% had ties to the pharmaceutical industry, 100%. And what's considered diagnosable directly impacts where the money goes. Okay, so those, there's a few facts about the DSM. Why do I say that? Why am I taking you down the road of what does the world teach about? This is the reason. The DSM, um, is their, their go, it's their Bible for how to, diet, how to treat people. Now listen, I don't think the people involved here are evil. I think they mean well but they're trying to solve spiritual, emotional problems without the wisdom that only heaven can provide. And that last statement is, is okay. So Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, we were here last, last time. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are my ways your, your ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Okay, off my rabbit trail, sorry, back to, back to this. So even psychologists began to criticize both uh, behaviorism and psychoanalysis, basically saying it was ineffective. Even in the secular world, those things are pretty criticized today. Instead, contemporary thinking by names like um, Abraham Maslow, uh, Carl Rogers, and others became proponents of, I think it's a third faulty method, and it's not behaviorism or psychoanalysis, it's called human psychology. Okay, so behaviorism says you're conditioned by your environment. Psychoanalysis says you're, you, you're conditioned because you, you're, your behavior is modified because of something dark in your history. Human psychology teaches that people are controlled by our own values and our own choices. It's you, it's you. And now this sounds more reasonable on its surface, right? Sounds okay so far. And the goal of this approach is for you to discover in yourself, you know, achieve your own potential. And that's the key word, Potential. You have the potential. It's in you. And that by far is the most popular uh, approach today. The idea here is that the answer is in you. You have it. Find it. Even yesterday at Skidmore University at the, the graduation yesterday, I noticed that Oprah Winfrey was the guest speaker. And here's a statement from Oprah Winfrey yesterday at Skidmore. There is nothing more powerful than you using your personality to serve the calling of yourself. It, it exemplifies that philosophy. Okay? That, and and I'm, I looked, so I'm curious, I looked on Amazon.com. How many books and publications do you have today that talk about self-help? A lot. Okay, so as of last Wednesday, 500 and almost 600,000 publications. There's supposed to be 30,000 more in the next 90 days, can't remember what it is. And so I thought, okay, I didn't spend too much time on this, but you can't see all the categories. Leave that up for a minute. I picked a couple of book titles that are in the best-selling range of these 600,000 publications. Okay, how's this one? Make Your Bed, Little Things That Can Change Your World. I guess mom was right after all. (laughs) Okay. Mindset, The New Psychology of Success. Here's another one. Now, I edited the name slightly, Okay. And when I give you the title of this book, you'll understand why. This is a bestseller right now. You are a bad donkey. How to stop doubting your greatness and start living an awesome life. One of the council members wanted me to give you the name straight. I said, no, I can't do that. That's too 
<laughs> I'm going to pay for that. That's book. Okay, I should go back to my wife in the garbage. Okay. Um, here's, oh, okay, here's another one. I'm going to tell you who the author is here. Opportunity Comes to Those Who Create It by Charlemagne the God. Charlemagne the God is a radio personality, and that's his radio personality name, okay? Charlemagne the God, T-H-A, God, okay. And, and start, uh, start where you are, a journal of self So there's, there's, there's just, you can read down the list. You know, another one, another bestseller. Will I be happy? You know, the idea here is, is, is in general, is positive self-talk, you know? I'm a nice guy. I'm a good person. I'm going to trust myself. And this is, approach is wrong for a variety of reasons. Number one is, it doesn't work. It doesn't. And, and, and another way is it just doesn't enhance behavior. And here's the thing. This philosophy is where the self-esteem movement has its birth. You know, your little kid strikes out at T-ball. You know what T-ball is? The ball's not moving. How do you strike out at T-ball? I don't know, but I've seen it happen. Oh, Billy, you're so good. I can hardly wait to sign your contract with the Yankees, you know. Come on. He struck out at T-ball. You know, or at school, you know, Billy. Hope none of you are named Billy. I... You know, he, he gets four right out of 20 on a math test. Oh, Billy, you're so smart. Come on. No. You know, Billy, put down the game controller and study for the next test. Don't say that to Billy. You'll crush his self-esteem. Well, listen. <laughs> Falsely boosting, um, overemphasizing self-esteem, it's, it's a failed test. In our culture, it is a failed test, all right. Although this is the predominant approach of of, of change, I I really believe it hurts our children. It does not help them. You know, there there are studies. How do you study self-esteem levels? Well, there are tests out there. Something called the Rosenberg Self-Esteem Inventory and the Sorensen Tests. And there are tests out there, and they have concluded that self-esteem levels are up. (laughs) Self-esteem scores are up. And somebody somewhere figured out that there are 93 million selfies taken every day. <laughs> Not pictures, selfies. We need 93 more million pictures of ourselves. I gotta have another one tomorrow. I gotta start that number over again tomorrow. It's just 93 million. And, and here's the thing if self esteem really is paramount and things are up, things should be better, right? Right? But they're not. They're not. There is a study that's done by a group called the Program for International Student Assessment. It's a way of assessing how our students are learning, comparing them around the world. This is not an indictment upon teachers. This is an indictment upon culture. You all with me on that? The teachers I know, I don't know a single teacher who is not outstanding in shaping young people, and they invest their hearts and their lives. They do a good job. But our culture teaches something that undermines them. It does. Anyway, but here's the latest ranking. What they do is it's a, it's a test that's given to 15-year-olds. Two areas, math and science. Out of the 35 nations who sponsor this test, 15-year-olds in the United States rank in math, we rank 30th out of 35. And in science, we do a little better, 19th. Not quite, well, about half. About in the middle course. 
So now they're figuring out that um, the better that little Billy feels about himself, the less he wants to apply himself. Why should I study? Why should I do that kind of stuff? I'm already awesome. You know, mommy and daddy have been telling me that. Even though I've never done anything, I'm awesome. That's a mirage. It's a mirage. And I really don't think we are doing our children a favor or each other by painting a false illusion of reality because it doesn't happen when they show up in the adult world. Put that thinking in a bag, tie it up, and kick it to the curb. <laughs> by the way, I think you should love your children. God loves you and me like crazy. He doesn't fill our minds, though, with false esteem. He tells us the truth. Part of which is he loves us like crazy. You need to love your kids like crazy. You need to love each other like crazy. But don't flatter your children. It's an insult. And, uh, you know, so kick it to the curb. The biblical view of man um, is different. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Above all things. I, I wrote myself a note here. Big smile, Terry. Because <laughs> this is like hard to say. You know, it says, And desperately wicked, who can know it? Our own hearts deceive us and make us think we're something that we're not. Because we want this esteem thing to tell us that we're just really swell. <laughs> There's a word from the 60s and the 50s. You know, I'm good enough, I'm fast enough, I'm, I'm strong enough. And this whole scenario is a denial of, of, of what we know down in our souls to be true. The answer is not in me. The, the answer is not in you. But catch this. This is important. Even though, you know, my heart's deceitful above all things, even though I'm depraved and, 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 and you are fallen, even though all that's true, God loves us. He loves us. His eyes are on you. There is nothing that misses his gaze. There is nothing that happens in your life that he doesn't catch and pick up on. Nothing. And here's the thing about that. That says something awesome about God, not about us. You catch that? He doesn't love you because you and I are so wonderful. He loves us because he's so wonderful. And that, by the way, is really good news. Why is that good news, Terry? Because of this. If God loves me because I do things well, or I do the right things, what happens to his love for me when I fail? And I'm going to. What happens to his love in those moments where I'm not doing or being or behaving the ways that I ought to. No, here's the thing. God loves you and me independent of how you behave. You know, it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter whether you're having a really good day or you are falling flat on your face. You can never in- increase God's love for you because it's already at maximum. It's rooted in who God is, not in us. And that's really good news. To me, that's really good news. It's really good news. Because I'm not so valuable. I'm not, you know, redeemable. I'm, I, I've, I've experienced God's grace. I've experienced that. And the human, this humanistic psychology about esteem has actually creeped into Christianity, and it's kind of sad. Second Timothy um, 3, Paul says to Timothy, but I know this, that in the last days, which I believe we're in, in the last days, perilous times will come for men will be lovers of themselves. He's not saying here, hey, good deal. When those last days come, people are going to finally figure out that everything is wrapped up in good self-esteem. 
Yet that's what culture is teaching you today, that the most important thing is for you to have a good esteem. The driving force for change is not self-love. It's God-love. It's God-love. It's not, it's not self-esteem. It's Christ-esteem. And Jesus said this. He said, He who finds his life will lose it, and he who loses his life for my sake will find it. You know, the world says, find yourself, the answer's in you. And Jesus says, no, lose yourself, the answer is in me. You know, and now here, okay, so I'm going to make a little shift here cause, and move along because we're getting close to the end here. Uh, we don't get to blame psychologists for 100% of this problem, okay? The church has its own mistakes as well. So let's talk about those, and I'm going to go fast. Um, um, number four, legalistic change, okay? This is the idea of change by the rules, it's a military thing. It's like you can picture a drill sergeant, you know, shine those boots, stand up straight, don't talk back, march, double time, do these things, da 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 okay? So that's the drill sergeant. The other thing is you, you see it, that's the way a lot of churches are. And to a degree, they, they all have that to some degree. I think even the church that I got saved in had it to some degree, you know. Here's what you do. You go to church three times a day, plus you have Bible studies, and you have a quiet time at home, and you pray with your wife, and you do this, and you do that, and you do, 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 do. (gasps) Really? That's Christianity? A bunch of rules? Really? Yeah, these are the things we don't do. We don't do these five things, these filthy five, or these dirty dozen, and I guess it depends on how fired up your church was. We don't do these things. And Paul says in Romans, okay, here in Romans 7, verse 5, he says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Verse 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We're no longer under the written code, but we're new. We have a new life in the Spirit. Verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Do you, you know how that works, right? The way that works is like, you know, it's the rule that somehow inflames your, your desire to sin. Okay? You don't get to blame the rule for it, but it's just a fact. Remember, mom and dad would say, hey, I'm going next door. Don't touch the fill in the blank. They would say that to you. Why? Would I like it? Would, would it be fun? I wasn't even thinking about the fill in the blank until you brought it up. Right? It's the law that somehow stirs that thing. And, and r- rules don't have power to change you. There's no power in legalism, you know, and, and, and maybe you grew up in a church full of rules. There's just no power in that. Paul even said, I will not be brought under the power of anything in 1 Corinthians. You know, and we will take this legalism. We will take two or three little things and make it as if they are everything. Meanwhile, missing the whole counsel of the Word of God that's balanced, and it actually says that that's a faulty system. And here's what that does, by the way: legalism. It drives sin under the surface. It doesn't get rid of it. And I just, as a side comment, I don't think we are. I don't want this church ever to become that where we have to hide sin here. I mean, you bring it. This is the place you bring it. This is where you bring it. You bring it right in here among us. I don't care if you've got, you know, a problem or if you, 
you know, you're, you're upset with your wife or you, you've got an anger problem or you've got a secret problem with pornography or you've got this problem or that problem. This is where the, the body of Christ comes together and loves each other and we will move forward together in, in the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. And so I just, I mean, I, I just don't want to, we're, cause after all, we're all coming from one of those places somewhere in our life. Somewhere. Just come, come with us. We'll go forward together because God has something way better than change by the rules. Romans 7 verse 8 says this, But sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Okay, faulty method number five. I'm moving fast here because I'm, I'm ascetic change. That's a big word. Uh, another word I could use is also big monastic change. This is, you know, the monks tried to do this. They lived alone, monks, right? Okay, there are a few out there still. But the first monks started practicing these things. And the idea here was that you'd, you, 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 would, you would move towards true holiness by completely suppressing anything that has to do with the flesh. The thinking was that. You know, you, you, you're made of flesh. God made you of flesh. But you can't be flesh somehow. And so it was very, very popular in the Middle Ages. In Europe, there were thousands of monasteries, places where either men or women would live to do this. And they basically took three kinds of vows. Um, in general, they took a vow of poverty. I won't own anything a vow of, of chastity. I will abstain from any sexual expression at all and um, uh, obedience. I will submit 100% to authority. Very, very, very difficult lifestyle. And I imagine, you know, you know uh, some monk somewhere and he's reading the Bible, which they're supposed to do, and he comes to this passage in Romans that we're heading into now. And this is going to be our, 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 our text today, although it's we're ending now. Um, verses 15 to 18. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So no longer, so, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Man, this is convoluted. You've got to really slow down. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Underline that last phrase. I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. You should catch that. You do not have the ability to live the Christian life. God made no provision for you to live the Christian life. Christianity is not trying harder, doing more. It's it's not working harder. Christianity is an intimate, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit getting in there and changing your steps and ordering your steps and filling you with wisdom and filling you with faith and leading you someplace that's really good. And yes, I mean heaven, but I also mean here, today, and now. You know? But I don't know what to do. The Holy Spirit will show you what to do. I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit will give you wisdom in those circumstances. And, and the Spirit helps us with our infirmities. Because I don't have that ability within me. It's not in there. Okay, ascetic change, monastic. Suppression of the flesh. You know, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to I'm going to. It just doesn't work. <laughs> Rules don't change people. By the way, trying by your own willpower. You know, anybody ever try to diet? <laughs> it's like jumping in a slingshot, Right? <laughs> You go back for a while, but then that thing snaps, and you go further into it than you were before you started. I mean, maybe just, okay, whatever. 
So rules don't change people, and I don't have the power to change myself. Okay, and then number six, intellectual change. Intellectual change. This is another faulty way of change. That's, that's Romans 7, 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. So you want to do right, but there's something close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. He's talking here about his mind. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. He's saying, in my mind I want to do right, but I don't do it. That's intellectual change. You know, I, I bet you have said to yourselves, you know, what, you know, why do I do that? Why am I like that? I know better. I know if I do that, I'm going to, but I do it anyway. I know I'm going get, to get upset. I know I'm going to get hurt. Now listen, this is my opinion about this. I believe the biggest value of small groups is the relational interaction that happens. I'm all for small group Bible studies. I think we need to learn more about the Word of God. I think you should do that. I love the Beth Moore studies. I love what the men are doing, what Rick is teaching. I love these things that are going on, and we need to do those things. But to me, the biggest value of those things is is not just the learning of the Word, but it's the relationships that get built and the sharpening as, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend or a woman. And, and the, the interaction of friends is, is, that, that build there, that is really, 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 really a big deal. I think that's about small groups. Here's the thing. It, it's, information is not the key. It's not the key. That's, it, the solution here is not an information thing. It's not intellectual change that needs to happen. You know, Paul said, you know, I've got this law in my mind, but there's a problem. And then he declares the problem in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? When you read it without knowing the context, it just sounds like this guy's whining. Two quick things, a little tiny bit of hope, and we're done because I've gone, you know, long. And I'll just say this to you. Um, we're going to be on this topic for the summer. Um, and I think the Holy Spirit wants to speak to us. And so... Um, um, you might feel like, well, I'd like some more positive from you t- than I got today. Um, <laughs> it's coming, and um, I'll be back on this in a few weeks. So, okay. All right, so what I'm going to say, and I'm going to say this and leave it right here, that we need biblical change. We need biblical change, okay? Number one biblical change, and it starts right here. The heart. Admit it. Admit it. Admit that the problem is your own heart, that it's, you're broken in, in, your, in you because of soul. That's why Paul's saying here, oh, wretched man that I am. You know, the word wretched here actually means distressed. It means weary from really trying until the point of exhaustion. Okay, that's what wretched means. He's, it's, 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 it's this word describing trying to change without 100% submission to God. Wretched, it's exhausting. My problem's a heart problem. And then number two, you, first you admit, then number two, you turn. You turn because only God can change my heart. He goes on, he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So we admit and then we turn. And we'll be back on this. And so you now know what you need to bag it up and kick it to the curb. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, um, 